0: of true delight whom I unseen adore Unveil thy beauties to my sight That I might love thee more Oh, that I might love thee
1: more You're listening to the weekly podcast from Fort Worth Presbyterian. The following message was recorded live from our sanctuary our prayer is that this message would nurture a joy for
2: loving God and loving people in you as you listen.
1: See my pleading Lord. We're going to be looking at two scripture passages today. The first is in Genesis 39 verses 1 through 21. That's on page 33 of the Pew Bible. And then uh, you don't have to turn there, but I'll read um, 1 Corinthians 10:13 after we finish that. Genesis 39, 1 through 21. Now Joseph had been brought down to Egypt, and Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard, an Egyptian, had bought him from the Ishmaelites who had brought him down there. The Lord was with Joseph, and he became a successful man, and he was in the house of his Egyptian master. His master saw that the Lord was with him, and that the Lord caused all that he did to succeed in his hands. So Joseph found favor in his sight and attended him. And he made him overseer of his house and put him in charge of all that he had. From the time that he made him overseer in his house and over all that he had, the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake. The blessing of the Lord was on all that he had in house and field. So he left all he had in Joseph's charge. And because of him, he had no concern about anything but the food he ate. Now Joseph was handsome in form and appearance. And after a time, his master's wife cast her eye on Joseph and said, Lie with me. When he went into the house to do his work, and none of the men of the house was there in the house, she caught him by his garment, saying, Lie with me. But he left his garment in her hand and fled and got out of the house. And as soon as she saw that he had left his garment in her hand and had fled out of the house, she called to the men of her household and said to him, See, he has brought among us a Hebrew to laugh at us. He came in to me to lie with me, and I cried out with a loud voice, and as soon as he heard that I lifted up my voice and cried out, he left his garment beside me and fled and got out of the house. Then she laid up his garment by her until her ma- till his master came home. And she, and she told him the same story, saying, The Hebrew servant whom you have brought among us came in to laugh at me. But as soon as I lifted up my voice and cried, he left his garment beside me and fled out of the house. As soon as his master heard the words that his wife spoke to him, This is the way your servant treated me. His anger was kindled. And Joseph's master took him and put him into the prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined. And he was there in prison. But the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. 1 Corinthians 10.13, No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. The word of the Lord.
2: As we come to consider God's word, let's ask the Lord to bless us in our hearing and proclamation of this word. Lord God, you have given this word by your Holy Spirit and you have preserved it over thousands of years for our benefit. And we thank you that the Holy Spirit that gave this word is given in a new way in the resurrection and ascension of Christ, poured out in abundance upon us, a spirit of wisdom, a spirit of light a spirit of conviction of sin and a spirit that grants faith, a spirit that enables us, that gives us new life, that is furthered and nurtured by the very word that he founded. And Lord, we we look to you, Lord Jesus, our Savior from day to day, our Savior for all time, that you would use your word and your Holy Spirit to transform us even now give us faith, uh, to give us sight, Lord, that we may resist the evil one, that he will flee from us, and that the name of the Lord Jesus will be lifted up by our lives. This we ask in Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> Many of us are familiar with the uh, basic story of Dunkirk in World War II. Um, May 10th, 1940, uh, the Germans, after their blitzkrieg of uh, Poland and Denmark and Norway, uh, turned their attention to the Netherlands. And five days later, Holland surrendered, May 15th. And their progress then, they went to Belgium and as I hope that I'm doing it backwards so it looks right to you, they proceeded into Belgium. Uh, Army Unit B proceeded west, while Army Unit A shot down south through the Ardennes uh, Arden, uh, Forest, going behind the line of the French. And they proceeded west as well. And this formed what uh, Field Marshal uh, Monstein described as the sickle cut, and they surrounded the Allied forces, 198,000 British, the British Expeditionary Force, and 140,000 French. And by May 25th, they were all surrounded at the port city of Dunkirk this coastal town just south of the Belgium-French line. May 26th, the British began what they thought would be, at the most, a two-day operation, hoping they could get some 45,000 troops out of there. After two days, they had only gotten 25,000 out. But surprisingly, and to this day it's a bit of a puzzle the Germans did not attack with their full armor into Dunkirk. It was just the Luftwaffe, that the, the air force that uh, came upon the town and attacked the evacuation. The evacuation was an amazing thing. Forty-six destroyers and large ships stood off from the coast. And there were 700 little ships called the Little Ships of Dunkirk. These were merchant marine ships, fishing vessels, pleasure ships, some even as short as 15 foot coming across the English Channel. Even lifeboats were brought. And they would ferry troops from the coast, from the shallow waters to the large ships. Some of them made the trip all the way back to England. And so by May 29th, uh, on that day, forty-seven thousand were evacuated. May thirtieth, fifty-four thousand. May thirty-first, sixty-eight thousand. And then by that time, the Luftwaffe was so uh, was tearing them up so much they had to go to night <coughs> evacuation. And so June first, <coughs> there were uh, sixty-four thousand, uh, sixty thousand. Uh, there was that was a British rear guard and. Uh, 60,000 French soldiers and then a final smaller unit on uh, the June 3rd. And so in the end, what uh, Churchill had originally said of the the Dunkirk entrapment, he says this is the greatest military defeat for many centuries. The whole root, the core and brain of the British army was stranded at Dunkirk. And it was turned around to what he described, a miracle of deliverance, 338,226 soldiers evacuated. Amazing. That's one of those wonderful historical ways of escape. You have to say physically and militarily, uh, the Lord provided the way of escape uh, for those troops. And I think that's a, a great illustration because... It was provided, and yet look how much effort went into it. How many people were engaged to get those people off that coastline. And it proved decisive even in the future of this war. And so uh, Casey just read 1 Corinthians 10.13, this phrase that we've been dealing with, that he promises with the temptation that comes at us that he will provide the way of escape that He will enable us to withstand temptation. That He, in fact, in James 4, as we've seen, He says, resist the devil and he will flee from you. As though it was a a battle line and the devil flees from us. As someone discussing this this past week uh, mentioned, it could even be that the very presence of the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives which causes us to give ourselves up to God's will no matter what, causes Him to flee from us because of the presence of Christ and Christ's life in our commitment to uh, God Himself. Here in Genesis 39 is certainly one of the classic examples of refusing temptation. And as we consider now in these next few weeks the way of escape, how does God provide the way of escape? You might say, well, it's pretty obvious here. Run. (laughs) That was the way of escape. Run out of the house. Leave that place. And yet there is so much involved as The kind of man that Joseph was, the kind of mentality that he kept, the kind of attitude he maintained that enabled him to run. And so we want to look at those things. Things like his understanding of what righteousness is in regard to other people. How he described the situation. This man's put all of these things in my hand. How could I do this wickedness? But in a given circumstance, we lose track of human righteousness. We lose track of what is the good thing to do for... and and even lose track that there are other people in the world almost in our ability to block everything and act on our own. He obviously expresses the fear of God here. How could I do this wicked thing against God? He maintained the sense of the presence of God. Those are several things that we want to look at in the weeks to come. But the first thing I want to look at, it may not be uh, as apparent, is that Joseph obviously was not dominated by self-pity in this situation. Joseph was not dominated by self-pity. That is one of the things that happens so easily to us when bad things happen to us. We begin to give ourselves over to despair, to hopelessness, to thinking I'm the only one that's in a situation like that. My problems are worse than anybody else's and we tend to want to just give up everything. Just jettison our whole hope for the future, our whole possibility of serving God and maintaining our righteousness. Especially when we're mistreated unfairly. Just think of Joseph in this situation, thrown in a hole to die, and then because of Judah's intervention, he's sold to the Ishmaelites, and then he is sold in turn to Potiphar and becomes a slave in his house. Now, Easily, Joseph at that point, thinking, I've been cut off from all of my family. I'm in a foreign nation. I was a free child in my father's house, minding my own business, so to speak. And then unrighteously, my brothers act against me and sell me and I'm gone. And he could have thought at this point, I'm going to get back at somebody. This guy, I'm going to get back at this guy who's Potiphar. Yeah, I'll have his wife. I'll get back at my brothers. I'll get back at everybody. I'll take control of this situation. I'll show that I'm the one who's the man. In a depression, he could have thought, I have nothing to live for. What's the hope? What's the future? I'll probably never get married, so here's at least some woman for me. be an easy conclusion, wouldn't it? Well, I mean, what else am I going to ever have? And here's this woman and can't help it if she's offering herself. And he must not be a good husband and on and on and on. And I'm just helping her out in her situation. He could have justified it in a hundred ways. And he could have justified it by the way he had been treated. What a setup. He travels, she wants you. You'd be stupid to pass this up. And so, Joseph, though, in the midst of terrible circumstances, not knowing his future, he continues to trust in God. And he continues to serve Him and do the right thing in the midst of it. And this underscores what we said last week, that Satan jumps aboard the train of circumstances, whatever it is that comes into your life. But one of his favorite trains to jump aboard is that of difficulty and trial. He delights in hopelessness. He delights in despair. He is the accuser of the brethren. And he accuses us and belittles our faith and seeks to destroy any trust that we could have in God. He wants to wear us out by terrible circumstances, sometimes assaulting us over a period of time. And what he wants to do in these circumstances is to distort your view of God. And this is the thing we've all got to realize. The real warfare, when suffering hits, is a spiritual warfare. It's not a matter of whether you're suffering or not. That's not the real issue. The issue is serving Christ in the midst of difficulty. We'll look to this passage in a minute, but I want to bring it in at this point. In Peter, the the whole letter is devoted to the suffering of God's people. And then in chapter 5, as he's talking further about suffering, and he says, don't be anxious for anything in the midst of suffering. Then he says, be a, a wide awake, be sober. Your adversary, the devil, goes about like a roaring lion. In what? In the circumstance of suffering. You see, In the midst of the hardest things that hit you. That's when he jumps on the train and he seeks to make the most of it. And he wants to distort your view of the goodness of God. He wants to cloud over the cross of Christ. He wants you not to think of God as one who can be trusted anymore. And he, in the words I like to use, he plays for position. There was a a friend of mine, he was the uh, tackle on the football team at Gasden High, And we had uh, chess tournaments at lunch. And Rod was known, uh, he was a very quiet guy, didn't say much, but everything he said seemed smart, you know. So you're kind of, all the other guys are in awe of this dude who uh, doesn't feel the need to jabber, but when he says something, it always means something. And uh, Rod played for position in, in chess. You would think watching him play with his loss of men that it's, there's no way, but he's just setting them up in position, checkmate. And that's the way Satan likes to work. To hurt you, and then hurt you again, and hurt you again, and hurt you seemingly worse than anybody could be hurt. And all the while, what he's really after is to divide your heart from Jesus Christ. And you think the whole thing is about suffering. No, the whole thing's about Christ. The whole thing is about your relationship to Jesus. We don't even realize that the enemy has jumped board this train. That that's the real issue. And even with the people that, the the writer of Hebrews, we we think the best, he could have been writing to uh, the Jews in the Palestine area, but I think the best scholarship would say he's writing uh, to the Christians in, in Rome. And... It's, it's amazing because he recounts to them not someone else's faithfulness as an example to follow... He recounts to them their own faithfulness because they're in danger of turning away from Christ at this point. But he recounts their own faithfulness. Years before, as we've read it before, they joyfully accepted the plundering of their own possessions because they were were willing to associate themselves with those in prison and they didn't care if it meant the loss of their houses and and all their possessions. They still ministered to those in prison. But now, years later, they were about to turn away. You see, it's the hammering, the bludgeoning of circumstances. And perhaps some of the reaction was, but we were faithful. We we did the right thing. And now look where it got us. I became a Christian. And look what's happened since I became a Christian. It's all been downhill circumstantially. This is a great deal. I give my life to Christ. He takes my life away. Especially if you've been listening to Joel Osteen. You'd really be surprised. Because everything's going to be great. And that's part of the deal that not, not that we will serve him no matter if he puts us to death or allows us to be put to death. We will hold him so precious and as such a treasure. As the writer of, of Psalm 73 says, You are my portion in this life. And even if my heart and flesh fail, you are my portion forever. We see it's the same for Joseph. Because what happens to him when he is faithful here? What happens to him? He is thrown in prison. And certainly at that point it's like, oh, this is great. I resist her. She comes after me day after day after day. I resisted her all the way to the end. I was faithful. I obeyed you. And now I'm in prison. And his attitude could have been when the baker and the cupbearer were thrown into prison and they had these dreams. And he said, I don't want to hear it anymore. I don't want to hear anything about God. I don't want to hear anything about anything spiritual anymore. I'm done with God. I'm tired of it. I tried that. I tried serving him. I tried being faithful. It got me nowhere. It got me in prison. I'm not listening to anything anymore could have just as easily been Joseph's attitude and think what would have happened if he hadn't been faithful in prison. Because he was faithful in prison, because he continued to serve God, because he continued to fellowship with God... He was shown favor. He got in charge of things in the prison, just like he had in Potiphar's. And when they shared their dreams, he gave the meaning of the dreams, and that got back to Pharaoh, and, and Joseph ended up second in command in Egypt, and it saved his family. If he hadn't been faithful in the midst of blow after blow after blow, still he didn't despair or lose hope. He knows the Lord's presence. And however terrible and unfair, he looked at it as the opportunity, the calling of God to that place to serve God faithfully. And so the meaning of Romans twelve one. boy, I, I memorized that back in college with my Navigator verse packet. Um, easy to memorize. Become living sacrifices, given up holy and and, uh, pleasing to God. But the meaning of that, a a living sacrifice to put yourself in God's hands and say, Lord, wherever you take me, whatever you do with me, whatever circumstances, I'm yours. I want to belong to you. I want to be like you. I want to manifest you, trust you, know you, taste you, delight in you. It's you and me. You are my portion forever. Really, that's the same thing as a living sacrifice is to say, it's you, you, you are what matters from now on. Whatever you would do with me, you are what matters. So what Satan wants to do and the real temptation and suffering is to take your eye off the ball. You know. The ball is pleasing Christ. That's the ball. The ball is being like Christ. The ball is trusting Christ. The ball is finding out more of Christ and having Him unveil Himself in the midst of your circumstance so that new rooms of His glory are opened up to you. And what does that do? That just undoes Satan over and over. No matter what he brings against us, we just draw nearer and nearer. So, just a few applications or a few ways that we maintain this uh, sense of uh, trust in God and and stave off self-pity which tends to destroy us. The the panic and the anxiety and uh, the the, uh, despair and hopelessness. Uh, The first thing that's very close to this passage uh, in Genesis 39 is you don't know how God is going to use what's going on in your life. You just don't know. I mean, it may look to Joseph like, well, this is, a, this is great. You know, I start, I'm, I'm a son of my father. I'm sold into slavery. I've become a slave of Potiphar. Now I'm in prison. What's next? You know, what's the next step down? Who would have thought that the step into prison is going to be second in command of Egypt, it's going to save your family back in Palestine. Who would have thought? And it will be the future development of the people of God. Even under the slavery of Egypt, it was the perfect condition for the development and growth of a nation. Who would have thought that God's purposes are are so woven... Who knows what God intends through your suffering to change the lives of people around you? Who knows what powerful impact in the earth that your life will have? The domino effect of you uh, affecting one other person and another and another and then a dozen and a dozen more because of your faithfulness. And that is the most glorious time for us to show forth how glorious God is, that He sustains us in the worst of times. That's why God doesn't put us in a bubble. That's why He allows us to suffer the same things that everybody else does. That's why we don't always get well. That's why we don't always keep our job. Because God has purpose of manifesting Christ. And you don't know how God will use it, but you do know God's purpose for you in Christ. You do know. And how does he underscore it? How does he fix it? And we have more hope than Joseph did. Because our hope is founded upon the cross of Jesus Christ. That the Lord who governed these circumstances, the Lord who ruled in Joseph's life, the Lord who later delivered Israel from the hand of Egypt, that Lord died on the cross, was raised and ascended into heaven, and is at the right hand of God. That is the assurance that you have. The Lord who died for me rules my circumstance. He rules every event. He rules every relationship. And He will rule it for His purpose. So number one, you don't know how God will use it specifically. And so you can't say in despair, nothing good can turn out of this. Because you do know God's ultimate and consistent purpose for you in Christ. Secondly, and this is closer to perhaps First Corinthians ten, and I would like for you to turn with me back to First Peter. If you're using the pew Bible, it's page one thousand seventeen. From the back, from the front to the back. <clears throat> First of all, you don't know how God will use it, so be encouraged for His good purposes in your life. Secondly, be encouraged that other believers face similar circumstances. Now, for a long time, that was the primary use I made of 1 Corinthians 10.13. That is that uh, no temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. So don't be Don't be full of self-pity to think, well, I've got it worse than anybody else. No, you have nothing that happens to you that is not common to everyone else. Now, in the context, I don't think that's the primary point Paul is making because the Corinthians were not full of self-pity. They were very confident and boastful. I think they were using it as an excuse for sin. But the principle that Paul brings out is true in that regard. That He brings out the general principle, you face the same things everybody else does. So certainly it applies in that way so that you can never say, well, man, I've got it worse than anybody. I've got circumstance upon circumstance. Nobody's ever faced things like this. And Paul would say if he was writing in that context, you've never faced anything that's not common to other people. And the understanding is and those people by God's grace are dealing with it. Now, this is very Uh, very specifically what Peter talks about here. Notice after he says in verse 7, casting all your anxieties on Him because He cares for you. This is chapter 5, verse 7. Casting all your anxieties on Him because He cares for you. This is in the context of suffering. Put your cares in his hands. All your fears, your anxiety, your despair, your hopelessness. Constantly cast it all and put it in his hands. Then he says, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. In the midst of difficulty, in the midst of your suffering, your adversary is seeking to devour you. Verse 9, resist him firm in your faith knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you've suffered a little while, the God of all grace has called you to his eternal glory and Christ will himself restore, confirm, strengthen and establish you. That itself is an application. But this, the specific one I want to bring in is that... um, you can know that the same kinds of suffering, the same series of difficulties, the same deprivations, the same mistreatment, the same loss, the same upturn, it has been experienced and has been by believers throughout the world and throughout history. And God enables them to please Him and serve Him and be like Him and taste His goodness in the midst of it, to trust Him and He will enable me... Do not be discouraged, Peter says. And earlier he talked about Christ uh, in chapter 2 entrusting himself, uh, verse... um, 23 of chapter 2, that Christ entrusted Himself to Him who judges justly in the midst of His suffering. He put Himself in the Father's hand. And then at the end of chapter 4, notice in verse 19, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful Creator while doing good. Isn't that what Joseph did? Didn't Joseph while he suffered and suffered unjustly, he kept entrusting himself to the faithful God while doing good. And if you'll back up one book to Hebrews chapter 3, I've just mentioned this because our time is up. You don't know how God will use it, but you do know his purpose for you in Christ. You know his purpose. Secondly, other believers are suffering in similar ways. And I'll come back to this passage in Hebrews 3, but especially written to these Hebrews in danger of apostasy. Notice what he says in verse 12 of chapter 3, page 1002, if you're in the pew Bible. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. And the unbelieving heart is the failure to believe in God's goodness. You see it? The failure to trust that God is good towards you, has good plans towards you, that He loves you and cares for you. And Satan wants to create in you, to bring you, to draw you out, so that you would have an evil, unbelieving heart Falling away from Him, not trusting in Him. But what's the antidote? Exhort one another every day as long as it is called today that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. To be deceived, to be isolated, to be cut out from the herd and lose track of what I am and who I am in Christ and be deceived and hardened by my suffering and by sin, so that I no longer trust in the goodness and grace of God. There's our warfare. And the promise of Christ is that none will snatch you out of my hand. No one will snatch you out of my hand. Nothing will separate you from the love of God that is in Christ. Whatever your circumstances Though you and I can't see it, it is a part of God's love towards you, His growing you, His drawing you closer after Him, His using you as an instrument to manifest His glory, and really and truly, it is part of His desire to make you the happiest possible person on earth. Sure doesn't look it. (laughs) Sure doesn't look it. But that is his purpose and it will not be denied. Let us pray. Oh Lord, we thank you that your cross is our anchor that holds within the veil. We come into your presence, accepted in Christ and beloved in Christ. We are your children and you are faithful to us And you will not allow us to be tempted beyond what we are able, but you will provide the way of escape. Oh, Lord, provide this way of escape for us, that we will not succumb to despair and self-pity, that we will not succumb to hopelessness when difficulties erupt in our lives. May we find the way out of trust in you, trust in your goodness, looking to the cross as that which describes to us your attitude toward us at all times. You are the one who gave your life, and now you rule the world and you rule us following that same love devoted to our good. Oh, Lord, give us the way out. We thank you that you will do it as you've promised. In Jesus'
0: name, amen.
2: Fort Worth Presbyterian is a part of the Presbyterian Church in America.
0: Jesus, my Lord, my life, my light Oh, come with blissful ray. Break radiant through the shades of night And chase my fears away won't you chase my fears away? Then shall my soul with rapture trace the wonders of thy love.